Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a cool and pleasant day in the mountains of Utah. Today's guest is the venerable science fiction and fantasy author, Maggie Ogden, better known by her pen names, Robin Hobb and Megan Lindholm. Robin is best known to fantasy readers for her multiple series set in the realm of the Elderlings. These include, but are not limited to, the Farseer trilogy and the Live Ship Traders trilogy. Robin and I discuss her long career, starting in children's literature, and all the way up to the recent announcement that she would be receiving the World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement Award. We talk about her use of pen names, her farm and grandkids, and her current writing habits. I hope you enjoy listening to me try not to babble nervously during an hour-long conversation with the wonderful Robin Hobb. That that was before headset mics on on the internet and Zoom and all those. Oh, things. it was way before the internet and email and um, everything. Do you think that all of that, you know, advancing technology has changed the way you look at writing at all? Um, what it did was in in my earlier days of writing. If I got one or two letters forwarded to me by an editor in response to a book. That was a lively response. Mm -hmm. And then as email came into it, suddenly uh, I could receive a deluge of letters following the publication of a book. And some would be good and some would be terrible. And some would be suggesting how I should have written it as if I could go back and change a book that I finished writing more than a year ago. Um, It definitely made me more aware of the reading public. And then, of course, the question that happens is, who are you writing this book for? Are you pleasing yourself or are you pleasing some uh, amorphous uh, public set of readers that, you know, you can't possibly please everybody. But I really think you can mess up a book trying. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting that's an interesting thought on that. I I kind of I guess I, I don't think about that nearly as much as I did when my career first started, which, you know, my career is f- still fairly young. I'm, I'm only about eight years into it. But I guess I've, I've always, I, I'm, I feel sometimes a little mercenary saying this, but like, I suppose I, I come out and, and think, well, first of all, I'm paying my bills, you know, I'm supporting my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, I, I guess I try... I don't know about, I feel like pleasing is almost too strong of a word. Um, I, I like to think about, uh, I, I like to think that I'm trying to keep the readers engaged and and maybe happy and interested. But but yeah, I mean, if, if you're using the word pleasing, that's kind of just referred to, reserved for me, I suppose. I want to please myself, but keep the readers interested in reading. Well, there's some... There's, um... 
When, when you work on a trilogy, as, as I'm well aware you've done, you have, yeah. uh, from the beginning, there's a kind of a story arc in your mind. But um, I think readers, especially, uh, and viewers of television, have become accustomed to being able to sway the course of the story. To say, oh, we'd like to see a relationship develop between those two characters. Or I think that's the most common thing where they they say, no, no, we we really want to see a romance there. or We really want to see the the hero pound the villain into, you know, bloody dust. And and that can be difficult because if you if you know the course of the story and you're getting a lot of feedback that is trying to sway you into a different course, it's like um, taking a road trip. And somebody else trying to grab the wheel. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can, you can get so far off track that you would never find the end of the story if you allowed that to happen. So I, I do think that um, for me, the story is not as malleable as it is for perhaps some other writers who have uh, begun their careers and um, ex- have have grown up in this internet age with all of that feedback. Yeah, and I I uh that's a question I'm going to need to write that down. And next time I talk to a TV writer, I think that's a great topic to talk about because I think that that may even affect them more than it affects, you know, people like us because you know, a trilogy is it's a bit cumbersome. It's kind of a it's a solo act. Um and and I think TV is a little bit more probably a little bit more engaged in that sort of, you know, the fans wanting to steer things and move things different directions. But I, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting topic, uh, especially today, you know, with social media and all that stuff, it's instantaneous. You know, I can watch an episode of Loki and then I can tweet about it while I'm watching it. While you're watching and, it, yes. Yeah. And, and even, and if I know who the writers are on it, I could tweet at them directly. Oh, and that's no. kind of crazy. <laughs> that's me. Uh, years ago, I went to a world con in Japan and I talked to several young ladies who were writers of manga and they, what they told me just stood my hair on end, which was, you know, oh yes, maybe you have a contract for, to write seven volumes, but then the editor may come to you and say, people are not enjoying this, wrap it up in two volumes or and they said this was worse for one of them, the editor may come to you and say, people are really enjoying this. We're going to draw this out for another 15 books. And yeah. then there you are, you know, and you're, you're building to a climax and you, you have all your people moving like chess pieces on a board. I, I just can't imagine that, you know, if somebody said, uh, no, no, you, you, you can't write the ending of the story. You have to, uh, Throw a, th- throw a monkey wrench in the works so the story goes on for another 10 volumes. That would be just terrifying to me. Yeah, me, me too. Like, I think that uh, maybe editorial meddling might be a little too strong of a word, but that kind of creative control being outside the hands of the writer, that definitely, that freaks me out a little bit. Um, I've I've talked to a few people uh, for this podcast already um, who who do intellectual property writing, and and it blows my mind that they can be in the middle of a book and have their editor come back and say, you know what, this one thing wasn't working, so I want you to scrap it and start over and have the new draft to me in eight weeks. Oh, my goodness. That just blows my mind. I, I couldn't do it. There's There's been a couple of times when I've, I've written in a, in a shared world uh, years ago for Leavec, 
But there have also been times where somebody has invited me to to write in an established world. And, you know, I simply can't do it because uh, it didn't grow organically for me. I really admire the people who can, who, you know, who can step into um, writing a, a Captain America comic or uh, can say, oh, yes, I'm... Uh, I'm going to, to take this other author's world and I've been invited to take a character. I just can't. I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I don't think I could either. I, I mean, maybe that would change someday. Maybe, you know, if I, if I, if I need to find other work or if, or, or if it's something I'm a huge fan of maybe. Um, but, but I, I feel like at this point in my career, I look at that sort of thing and go, it's a very particular skill set that I just don't have or I haven't developed at all. The flip side of it too is that um, there are so many, you know, I've got a, a, a story, a, a lineup of stories that I have been meaning to write um, all during COVID. And if I stepped sideways and went off to write in somebody else's uh, world, some of those stories are just never going to get written. Yeah. And you feel a loyalty to your own world and your own characters and saying, you know, well, nobody else can write this story. But what some of the big franchises, you have a, a nice stable of people who can step in and do a wonderful job on those stories. I want to write my own stuff. Yeah, it's it's almost like, uh, you know, going to a family party versus being invited to a party with a bunch of people that maybe they're glamorous, but you don't know any of them. You know, one <laughs> of them's very comfortable <laughs> and and one of them has maybe there's great opportunities there, but also you feel kind of shy and you don't really know how to behave. And, and many hazards. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't know what's gonna what's gonna go over well and what won't and all that sort of stuff. I had I had meant to ask you when we first started talking. <clears throat> do you prefer speaking in kind of like a, a, a more casual setting? Do you prefer Megan? Robin or Margaret? Um, you know, over the years, you know, what I hear most often now is grandma, you know, and before that <laughs> it was mom. And um uh and going up through high school, it was Maggie or it was Fang, which was my high school nickname. Um so uh <laughs> uh it's I can definitely, you know, like right right now I'm working on a, a on a what I hope will be a book that's written by Megan mm -hmm. Lindholm. It's it's definitely not a Robin Hop thing. And I, I change those hats the same way people change hats when they're being a, a son as opposed to a brother or a friend or an uncle or a stranger. You know, you, we, we all wear those multitudes of hats all the time. Um, so it's pretty much like that. Oh, that's 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 funny. I I kind of um, I when I first started, my my agent came to me and said, well, what else do you have, you know, in the back of your head? You know, you've got a big epic fantasy. We've got a three book contract for you. Is there anything else that you are working on that I should know about? And so I discussed a few ideas that I had been kind of bouncing around in my head. And she asked, do you, if you do this other thing, which, uh, you know, like a, an urban fantasy, do you want to do a pseudonym? And I, I, I kind of wonder if the pseudonym has gone maybe out of style. I, I I don't know. It's a weird it's a weird place because pseudonyms seem like they used to be a very big thing. People writing under names that weren't their own. And and to me, at least at kind of my generation, I kind of think anybody could find out who I am, the real me, at any moment, just by Googling, why would I bother with a pseudonym? Um 
And I imagine that was very different when you were first writing. Oh, you know, if you look back at the history of our genre, uh, especially the the magazines, uh, if have uh, writers using pseudonyms had nothing to do with. Uh, um, it, it was all about uh, this magazine has four stories by the same author. Let's use four pseudonyms, and some of those pseudonyms actually belonged to the magazine and were swapped around. And it makes tracking the uh, the true author of a of a story uh, very difficult now because that pseudonym may have been used by two or three different authors. And the other use for pseudonyms is um, for people who write in several genres. I, I wouldn't, you know, if I wrote a Robin Hobb Western or romance or, uh, you know, a, a historical novel, uh, and my reader who is, who loves my fantasy novels picks it up and goes halfway through it and, you know, gets into it three chapters and says, oh, you know, well, where's the magic? You know, uh, this is not what I wanted. So it's kind of like, um, what kind of cereal do you like? Uh, you know, are you going to buy Raisin Bran or Frosted Flakes? And if you're, you know, if you're expecting Frosted Flakes and Raisin Bran comes out of the box, it's not fun. So um, for me, choosing a pseudonym, choosing Robin Hobb was a lot of fun, but it was also because I was taking a big sideways step in the genre. Uh, my agent at, at the, you know, at the time, it said, you know, you're writing, you're writing all over the genre. You know, there's, I mean, there's, uh, there's swords and sorceries. There's blood and thunder, thud and blunder. There is. Um, historical fantasy and there's you know fantasy that has romance in it and fantasy that is more like men's old, the old men's adventure fantasy and if you don't settle down and decide what slice you're writing in your readers are just you know it's it's like you know they have no idea where you're going <laughs> yeah so um definitely i i don't think i would ever i don't think i've ever come up with an idea for an urban fantasy that i would write as robin hobb and um Whereas mm -hmm. Megan Lindholm, that's my natural voice for that. And uh, that's what I'm comfortable with. That's really interesting. I I actually, I had no idea about the the thing with the magazines and <laughs> having an entire issue be the same author. Well, it was, uh, some of the authors of the time were very, very prolific. You know, they're working for just, you know, pennies per word. And um, so you needed to crank out those short stories and get them out there and sell them. And uh, if once you knew, you know, once you had the right voice and kind of story for an editor, uh, you know, if you had three or three or four stories in one magazine, uh, the editor would say, well, we don't want it to look like the magazine's been written all by one writer. So we'll just use, you know, one of our our uh, our pseudonyms. And oh. um, that always fascinated me that, that that could happen. Did did that happen to you? Oh, no, no, that's never happened to me. My my. Uh, I'm talking about like 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, long before I was actually being published, you know, yeah, long before I was alive. But uh, <laughs> uh, the pulp magazines and their history just fascinate me. They're just wonderful. And um, so many of our, 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 our big name writers, you know, got their start there and honed their skills there. So. Well, yeah, that is fascinating. It's our heritage. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, you know, kind of the history of, you know, what we do for a living. And it's, it's interesting, because like, like that in particular, I, I guess, I, I mean, it obviously fell out of favor a very long time ago. But I feel like I would, I would feel a little robbed as an author uh, to have a, a name on on something of mine that isn't mine. 
Um, but I, I suppose, I suppose if it is though, if, if you're really churning out that much content and it's, it's all about, you know, getting something new for the next issue, then maybe it doesn't matter as much. Well, it's less personal. And for some of the writers of the time, what mattered was getting that two or three or five cents a word, you know, uh, rather than, uh, you know, is your ego involved, you know, um, and, and, and editors at that time also would, would change titles on stories, uh, very frequently from what I understand. I wish I had my sources here. There was one writer (laughs) who was, who they kept changing his title. So he started writing things like, you know, war and peace and, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, a Christmas tale, you know, whatever. And, and because he knew the editor was going to change the title anyway. So he just slapped anything on there that he wanted. As, as far as having a pseudonym, you know, because I chose mine and uh, it is my name. That That's my yeah. name. I, w- I wouldn't want anybody else using it. I wouldn't, I would be very upset if uh, somebody proposed that somebody else write a story in my universe, but we'll put that name on it. That would be, that would be very distressing for me. So I am, Robin Hobb belongs to me as much as Megan Lindholm does. So yeah, that's, that's really cool. Do you think that, uh, do you think that ego has a place, you know, for a writer? Is it, is it good? Is it bad? Is it, is it nothing? Well, I, I think uh, I think it varies from person to person. Some people have frequently asked me if I didn't have my feelings deeply hurt that I had to change my name to be published, and I uh, that wasn't that wasn't it at all. My agent and I had a wonderful time picking out a new name, and I never uh, it was a suggestion. It was not you must do this. So um, in in a way, it's uh, and this is something I've said before. It's rather like saying to somebody, I'm going to tell you this story the way my Irish grandmother would have told it to me. And then you would adopt her cadence and her accent and her vocabulary and tell the story. So it's it's just uh, another voice in the repertoire. It's it's um, uh, another layer of characterization in, in a sense. Yeah. So you, uh, just the recording today, you just found out yesterday that they announced the World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement Award for you this year, which is huge. I was stunned. Gordon Van Gelder very, very kindly phoned me and said, uh, "I, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. So when you start seeing it on social media, it's, it's not, a, you know, it was a shock just to get the phone call. And, and I was grateful because if I had seen it bouncing around <laughs> on social media, I would have been warning people that this is a hoax. You know, don't don't believe everything you read on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was very kind of him to give me a call ahead of time. And of course, um, we've known each other quite a while. And it, it's that kind of news coming from our friend is always kind of like, wow. Uh, thank you. I'm still trying to get my head around it. So, you know. Yeah. Well, and I, I wanted to ask you how you feel about it. Um, when I was a, a writer at about the about the, the same stage as, as you're at in your career, awards were like really important to me. And I so longed to win a Nebula or a Hugo yeah. or, you know, uh, but it, it just did not happen. It just didn't happen. I, I was nominated here and there, but no, you know. And after a while, um, it just didn't become important anymore. And I think that the two awards that um, really, you know, that I have framed and up in my office are uh, the the ones from the Asimov's Readers Awards. Now, those that's given to you by your actual readers. And there's, you know, yeah. there's, I don't think you can politically sway that or anything. So it's it it's very sincere. 
So those two mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And, and this one does does too, because it's not something where it's, um, uh, I don't know quite how to put it. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like you're, you're in a race with other people. It, it happens or it doesn't. So. Yeah, no, I totally get that. That's, uh, that's, I, I think it's just really cool. And, and your career now has spanned, is, is it 50 years now, more than 50 years? I've, my first published story was when I was 18 and I'm 69 now. So, um, yeah. But my first published story, I was writing for children back then. So it was a very different arena. Yeah. H- have you thought about going back to children's writing ever? Oh, uh, I-, I still write children's stories. I just don't put them out there for publication. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, do, do the grandkids get to see them? Oh, oh sometimes. I, I've got one, you know, on the book that I'm thinking about, on the on the screen that I'm thinking about. This would be fun to ask my, my uh, seven-year-old granddaughter, why don't you illustrate this for me? And then I would probably print it out just for us. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I, I want you to be my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably old enough. <laughs> uh, you're, you're younger than my parents, actually. Really? Really? They're, uh, my dad just turned 72, I believe, just a, uh, a week ago, I think. So I'm not that much younger at 69, you know, so. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fun. Do you, uh, you, you mentioned that you're used to hearing your name as just grandma and you, you also, when we were emailing, I hope you don't mind me say, saying that you, you mentioned that you kind of had stepped back from writing and you're spending a lot of time on the farm. Tell me what, what's your life like these days? Well, um, uh, my fingernails are really dirty right now. <laughs> uh, I, because uh, prior to this, I was out um, adding to the compost heap and digging in some dirt and trying to look up whether I can divide my daylilies now and replant them if I have to wait till fall. Uh, I have chickens. Um, I've got two dogs and two cats. And uh, I, last night I had five deer come in and clear off probably half my apple har- harvest. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's much more peaceful. Um, it's much, uh, more, I, I, if I'm writing something now, it's, it's, um, again, it's something that I really want to write. It's not because I, I I don't have a contract right now. I I stepped back and said, you know, I just don't want to sign another contract right away after, uh, uh, assassin's fate. And so I, I've gone several years now without a contract. And as a result, I've started all kinds of projects and they're all in various and sundry half finished states because there isn't an editor or anybody saying, well, what about this? Didn't you say that was going to be done two months ago? So um, it's more laid back. Um, quite frankly, I, 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 the quarantine, staying home, not going out so much, that was fine with me. I, I don't, uh, I know some people really need the day-to-day contact with people and, and I just don't, I just don't. So. D- did you still get to see your family a bit during quarantine? Um, yes, I did. Uh, we were, we were all very, very careful because, um, some of my grandchildren are very young and, uh, mm-hmm. right now, um, I'm, you know, I'm immunized and I think, you know, cat, cat's fully immunized and all of that. But, um, when you're, you've got grandchildren who can't be fully immunized, 
And I'm aware that even though I am immunized, I could still pick up that variant and have very few symptoms. And then I can pass it on to my grandchildren who are not and cannot be immunized at this point. So um, we're still masking. We're still hand sanitizing. We're still washing our hands a lot. We're still not, no hugging, uh, no shaking hands. Um, I went into a university bookstore a couple of days back to sign some stock for Dwayne. And um, I st- still go in masked. Uh, I still don't don't hug Dwayne or shake hands with him. Um, it's uh, the six foot distance, and yeah, uh, it, and it will be. Um, a lot of years ago, way before COVID, I got really tired of having con crud every time I came home from a convention because you come home and you have it, and then you spread it to your family, and it circulates around for weeks, if not months. Mm-hmm. So I started taking, had a little thing of hand sanitizer clipped to my bag. And um, after I I did a signing session, I would sanitize my hands. And before I ate or drank anything, I would sanitize my hands. And lo and behold, I didn't get concrete anymore. And so I started that habit a long, long time ago. And with all the masking, I have not had a flu or a cold since we started doing this. So I will probably... In terms of uh, airplanes, buses, trains, crowded malls, I will probably continue to mask for the rest of my life because I don't like being sick. Uh, that that's not that that seems pretty smart to me. I I think I only really started taking Concrud seriously around maybe 2019, and my my wife was getting really annoyed because I kept saying, "Well, I want to do more conventions. I'm getting invited to more of them. It's really fun. I like it." And she kept saying, yeah, but you get sick every single time. And uh, and that's when I started doing the same thing with the with just making sure that I always had a little hand sanitizer with me and and being a little bit more conscious about touching my face and stuff like that. Um, and and that's and that's kind of it's a weird thing because, you know, for for writers, we're we're very, I guess, secluded people, except suddenly you know, a few times a year, we're thrown into a convention where there's anywhere from 2,000 to, you know, 200,000 people. And and that's a good way to get sick all the time. Well, it, it is. And for me, that shifting of gears is has always been a challenge. I'm, I'm not, uh, left to myself, I'm not a very social person. So mm-hmm. when suddenly there there's a schedule and you, you've got to get up and you've got to eat breakfast in a hotel and then You've got to get there and there's a panel at at 11 and uh, a short break and try to find something to eat in a convention center. And then there's another panel at one and oh, and there's one at two. So you have to really jog from this one to that one through a crowd. I come home exhausted from those and I, and I don't want to talk to anybody for two weeks afterwards. (laughs) So it's, um, you know, I, I didn't go to a convention till I was probably in my thirties because I, you know, I was, Part of it, I was up in Alaska and writing, and there and there wasn't an opportunity. And then, the challenge of going to a convention when there's no babysitter and you have small children, you have this uh, retinue with you all the time of people that have to eat something and go to the bathroom and can't go into the bar. And uh, so it's, it's, it was a different convention experience for me when I first started going to, like Moscon and Norwestcon and Rusticons, the little cons around. You know, at, at that time, uh, Norwestcon was a small convention. And you got to talk to people and sit mm-hmm. down, but they're, they've grown so big and they are very demanding. And, um, 
and they're very expensive too. Uh, a lot of uh, people I've talked to think that writers are paid to come to conventions. <laughs> and the fact is that a lot of the big content conventions like Emerald City, maybe you're an attending professional, they still want you to pay a, a reduced price for a badge. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, the a cup of coffee or a bag of chips in between is, you know, you're going to stand in a long line and it's going to be expensive. But it, it's a, an expense that, that writers have to take into account when they're balancing it against, you know, is, is this really going to benefit my career to the point that I can uh, buy a plane ticket and buy a hotel and buy a membership and pay hotel prices for food? It's an equation. And it, it's a tough one, for, especially for younger and newer writers who are trying to break out and, um, and, and they want to get to the conventions and meet the editors and meet the other writers and uh, maybe get an agent if they don't have an agent. But it, it's, it's, uh, it's expensive. It's, it, it is. Yeah. And, and it's uh, um, demanding. It, it really is. And it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of thing to judge because – because for for some of us, like the 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 conventions are that's our social life for the year. Yes. Um, I know in a lot of ways it is for me, where you know that's when I go see my you know professional colleagues and friends and actually get to have some FaceTime with people. and and so there's there's that little bit of judgment in there of, you know, do I want to spend two thousand dollars on this weekend uh, because, mm -hmm. Because it's a you know it's an expensive plane ticket and oh gosh the hotels are already mostly sold out and you know all of that stuff um, I I I I did make a I, I made a rule for myself a few years ago that I, I was not going to go to conventions anymore if they they didn't give me a free badge mm -hmm. and it seems like almost a petty line to draw no but it's it not. seems like yeah but it's it's really not because. Because if they if they're not giving you at least paying for you to you know just go into the convention and you know set aside the hotel and the flight and the food, mm -hmm. but it, then then they clearly don't care about you being there that much. Well, the the whole thing is too that if if all the writers stopped going to conventions, what would happen? I mean, right now, of course, uh, the so called comic cons. Wow, uh, there's there's uh, the emphasis now is on the the TV and movie stars who are acting out the the wonderful stories based on what were once comics or were once novels. Yeah. And that, that's the big draw, I think, for a lot of people who are going to go and pay $35 for an, an autographed or a, or a photo. And it and it's a great opportunity. I'm, I'm not putting it down. I'm not saying that I, I don't like conventions. I'm just saying that uh, if you are a, a writer who's breaking in, you, you need to pick, choose. And um, yeah, and not have any illusions about what it's going to do for your career. The best part about conventions for me are um, meeting other writers and getting a chance to sit down and have a cup of coffee and face to face with an editor that the rest of the year is just email. And um, and the things that I that I still love about conventions are the art show uh -huh. and the cosplay and and there used to be many of them used to have a a costumed ball on Saturday night mm -hmm. which i you know we don't really see anymore you uh the the friday night or the saturday night dance at norwestcon used to be a big deal yeah. and um those kind of have, have gone the way of the dinosaurs 
But uh, just the cosplay is still wonderful. The art show is still wonderful. And of course, the chance to meet writers that you haven't met before. And maybe you've been reading them for years and years. So I, um, I'm always kind of fascinated. In fact, it, it, it informed somewhat my decision to start this podcast. I'm fascinated by the fame that authors do and do not have because it's it's a strange little place where you have millions of readers you have people you have people all over the world that you've have read your stuff but i imagine that you have not been recognized in public very much and and that's kind of crazy it it's uh well do you remember an old old rock song about video killed the radio star okay. oh yeah of course it, okay so in some ways um I look at some of our more beautiful or handsome colleagues and um, <laughs> the internet and conventions have really done well by them. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, there, there is always that, but then there is the person who is shy or awkward or uh, does not present well in public for, for any number of reasons and, but maybe still a wonderful, wonderful writer. So um, it's it's uh, pushing pushing writers out into the public spotlight. Uh, I, I would prefer not. <laughs> I'm glad that people don't. I'm glad that people don't recognize me on the street or in the uh, supermarket. I am sure that there yeah. are people like Neil Gaiman or George Martin who uh, can't really go out and have a a quiet, peaceful stroll through the park without people recognizing them. And um, I, I don't know. That's it it all depends on how social you are, I guess. I think some people would be delighted. But for me, uh, to have a stranger come up and greet me by name at a convention, I expect that. But, you know, mm -hmm. not if I'm out walking the dog or going to the vet or something. So, you know. Yeah, there's there's a certain headspace that, that I kind of occupy when I'm being Brian McClellan, the author. Mm -hmm. Um and and so yeah like if i'm at a convention and somebody that i don't know calls my name it, it genuinely it doesn't bother me at all um that's what i'm there for but it is it is weird being in a private place or a private private headspace even mm -hmm. uh like you said walking the dog um i've had i've only had two instances uh one of them was i was on <laughs> and this was this i didn't really mind this one in fact it kind of delighted me um, although if I had been in a bad mood or something, it probably wouldn't have. Uh, I was on a call with my insurance, my medical insurance, and, <laughs> no. and the person helped me and they were really nice and I got through with it really quickly. And at the very end, they kind of stammered and they said, I'm really sorry, this is really unprofessional, but are you Brian McClellan, the fantasy author? And <laughs> I, was, I, I was in a really good mood because it had gone quite easily. And so I was very delighted by that. And like the idea of someone recognizing my name in, you know, it, not at a convention was very cool. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, like you said, though, that there's just a place. If I had been in a different place mentally, mm -hmm. I probably would have been super annoyed by that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and I wonder how, uh, you know, because there's some people that are mega famous, some movie stars that are oh, very yes. shy in real life. And how do you deal with that? Greta when... Garbo, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be alone. Yeah, yeah. How do you how do you deal with being just recognizable? Like I, I remember seeing uh, 
when Game of Thrones was really huge, I remember seeing George R. R. Martin on Conan O'Brien and thinking, holy crap, a fantasy author is on Conan O'Brien. Isn't that amazing? amazing? That is amazing. Yeah, I, I often wish that they, when they print out your badge for a con, that there would be one that says "Not in Service," where you could flip it over and walk through the through room, and and people would not stop you and say, "Oh, would you just really quickly sign this for me?" But uh, yeah, but for the most part, um, I, I feel like the bargain is if you go to a convention, then you're committed, and it's time to be social and talk to people and have a good time at it. You know, I, I don't want to sound like I am uh, annoyed when I'm at a con and uh, uh, somebody asked me to sign a book or something. There are extreme cases. I've heard of, of people sliding books under bathroom stall doors. And that seems Ooh. to me like, like, no, just no. <laughs> that has never <laughs> that has never happened to me. It's, it's, maybe it's an urban myth that only writers know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But uh, no, I think if you're at a convention, you should give yourself to the moment and have a very good time. But um, yeah. if you're, you know, trying to trying to go to the kindergarten school play or something, that is not a time that you want people to come up and say, oh, are you are you so and so? Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm I'm very um I guess antisocial in my community. <laughs> I, I know the names of exactly three of my neighbors. <laughs> and uh the one time of the year that I participate in the community is uh Halloween. Yes. I get the big candy bars and I sit out front all night and pass out candy because I genuinely love doing that. And I I guess despite being a bit of a curmudgeon, uh people generally know that I'm an author. And so it's always funny because I'll be handing out candy bars and there's always three or four parents that will come and stop and just chat with me about my writing for five or 10 minutes while their kids are saying, dad, I want to go to the next house. Oh dear. <laughs> I, I, I love Halloween. I'm out here on the, uh, where I am. I, I, I really don't have neighbors on one side. It's a, uh, uh, the, the land is owned by a conservancy, so they're never going to develop it. And on the other side, Every now and then I'll hear the guy playing playing music, but he has a big lock on his gate and no mailbox, so I've never even said hello to him. We still have a place <laughs> in town in Tacoma, and uh, I do like to mm-hmm. go in for Halloween just just to pass out the candy and see the kids. And in that neighborhood, we we do know our neighbors. I mean, we've lived across the street from the Martinez's for probably, oh my goodness, 20 years. 
So I know them and I know their grown kid, their, their grown offspring and then their grandkids. And um, that to me is the best part of the neighborhood is uh, knowing the, the congenial people in it. And that yeah. is, is something I, I, I miss a little bit out here, but um, you know, I, I would uh, enjoy if I'm doing something in the garden and Judy comes over and says, you know, well, try it this way or do this or that. And that's, that's that's the nice part of neighbors, but uh, uh, out here I'm pretty much left to myself, and I, and I like that. What kind of acreage do you guys have? If you don't mind me asking, um, we started out with a, a with a little soggy piece of land about uh, three three and a half four acres, and then um, when our neighbors decided that they were going to move and retire, we bought their adjacent acreage. So it's about fourteen acres, but um, there's maybe Three acres that is uh, flat and usable, and then it slopes off fairly abruptly and goes down into wetlands, a stream, and and then down to the river. We don't own well, we we don't own any riverfront except once or twice a year when we do, because it comes up and says hello to us. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's uh, it's a pretty peaceful life here. You know, I've got fruit trees and and strawberries and chickens and uh, room for quiet. You know. We first bought this place, gee, how long ago? Close to uh, 40-some years ago, we first bought this place. And at that time, if a truck went by in the night, it would wake me up. And yeah. now it's um, there's there's traffic, and I've had to put up a fence between me and the road. And it's, it's changing. Um, uh, people are cutting their trees down and things like that. But, you know, it's life. You know, you don't, you don't get to tell other people what to do with their land, so... <laughs> I I love watching your Instagram because you post so many photos of your little farm. And I, I really like that. Uh, it reminds me a lot of where I grew up in Ohio because Ohio is a very wet place. And, uh, and I grew up on five acres uh, with a little stream running through it and a lot of woods. Oh, it sounds like heaven. I, I loved it. And, and it's, I, I really enjoy Utah a lot and I love the mountains here, but I have a little third of an acre plot in the suburbs and I miss kind of the green and the big trees and the water flowing everywhere. And, and so I, I always, you know, whenever my friends are posting pictures like that, I always enjoy that. Oh, well, any, anytime you're out this way, you can come stay in our guest cottage for, for a bit. It's very, very, it is very, um, uh, minimalist. (laughs) It does have running water though. It does have running water and the, and the electricity is okay. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Ah, I love that. Um, you, uh, the, I, the, the little farm you've mentioned before that you get kind of trash coming up in, in the wetlands is, is that an old dump? I, I would say that people have been, uh, uh, living and doing things on this land for probably about a hundred years. And mm-hmm. so when we purchased the additional acreage, there was a lot of people had literally, you know, dumped things down the cliff. We we cleaned up a lot of it. We brought in a big dumpster and we filled and a big dumpster, not not the one you see behind the grocery store, the signs you see at a construction site. And we filled yeah. that up two or possibly three times just with uh, you know, a couch out in the bushes. And Ooh. um and the the funny part is is stuff keeps pushing to the surface. So just this summer I've had two places where um uh, asphalt roof tiles, piles of those have, have been like like a like a pimple, like it's erupting to <laughs> the surface. And I'm going, okay, I'm going to have to 
to clean that up. And because yeah. um, the, the land just kind of rejects it. And then down this cliffside, uh, there's um, somebody had literally, when we first moved here and, and my daughter knew the neighbor kids, um, there was an old truck that was kind of packed, parked halfway on the cliff. And somehow over the years, uh, it is now pieces scattered down the cliff and it's rusting oh. away. So I'm thinking uh, the rust will take that away. You know, it will oxidize and go back into dirt. But, you know, the, the, you know, the washing machine somebody shoved down there, you know, and I'm talking, you know, there's uh, parts from a car that was probably a, a 30s or a 40s, you know, model. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing how people treat the land. But, you know, I don't think I've ever been on a farm that didn't have a junk pile of we might need that someday. So, you know, here's the, uh, the, the, those steel fence posts are a little bit bent, but we might have to hammer it out and use it. And uh, I'm, I'm sure if you grew up, you know, on, on acreage, you know that there is almost always, yeah, that's the, go look in the lumber pile and see if there's a two by four there. Or, oh, yeah. um, you know, this, this plastic bucket might have a hole in the bottom, but maybe we could plant, plant something in it and it would work. So don't, don't throw that away yet. So th I think all, all farms have that, uh, that kind of a junk pile, but, um, yeah, we, we cleaned up a lot of them because as I said, it's, I think people have been living and farming and doing stuff here for probably about a hundred years. And there was just a lot of junk and there, I am still finding it. So <laughs> it's how it is. <laughs> Do you find that the kind of, um, maybe the ecosystem of where you live informs the settings of the, the worlds that you create. Um, because personally, like I feel like uh, especially my first series, the powder mage books that it, it, to me, there's, there's mountains in them, but in my brain, everywhere else is it's green and lush. It's Ohio to me. <laughs> um, and I'm, I, I always wonder if other authors do the same thing. Um, I think a lot of Buck, uh, the, you know, this, the setting for the, the Farseer trilogy is, uh, is Kodiak Island with the big black steep cliffs. And uh, definitely, uh, you know, the, the Six Duckies is a place that has earthquakes and volcanoes because that's, you know, just part of our, our you know, of our, our natural environment here in the Pacific Northwest is, uh, yeah. yes, there's very, very steep mountains and, and uh, you may get a quake from time to time. And um, if a volcano erupts, you may get a lahar and that changes everything that's coming down the river for a while. So, uh, of course, you know, it. You, you write what you know. And the fun part of that is readers do so much of their own, of the writing for you. I mean, all you have to do is, is say the word river to somebody and everybody sees a different river. Yeah. And so the setting of your book, uh, half of it is what the reader brings to the page, whether it's the word river or tree or meadow or, or horse or, or dog, you know, it, it's all of those nouns have really basic connections for people. And uh, readers do a tremendous amount of the writing work in a book. Do you, everybody reads a different story. <laughs> yeah. That's, that, that's something I think maybe, I don't consider enough in my own writing uh, because I, I always have very particular things that I'm envisioning. And I don't know if I kind of give enough credit to the reader and what they might or might not get from what I've put on the page. Is that something you think about or, or do you just kind of let that go when you turn the book in? Oh, I love it when the readers do all that work for me. 
I mean, I, you know, I've been reading your first Powder Mage, and um, there, the, I'm a very slow reader these days. So they're they're heading up a mountain, yeah. and I see Old Woman Mountain on Kodiak. Now I don't know what mountain you were riding, but that's the mountain yeah. I see. And um, there's, you know, so I uh, even if you tell me that uh, this particular kind of stone, chances are I'm going to overlay it with my own experience. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a shared experience and everybody does read a different book. No matter, you know, if I tell you it's a white cat, it's a white long-haired cat, it's a white long-haired cat with blue eyes, uh, you're still seeing a different cat than the one yeah. that I'm seeing. And uh, no matter how many details I layer onto that, you, you know, you're still going to have a, a different cat than the one that, uh, that I, I try to see in my mind. Uh, consider cover art. <laughs> yeah yeah so um so you know especially with the cover art you have to make room for other people's creativity and other people's vision so i uh i'm i i'm always i, I always love the reviews that I'll, if i see or i'll sometimes see a back-to-back -back review where one person will say character x was the my favorite character ever i've never read a character that spoke to me so closely this is amazing and then literally the next review will say, oh, I hated character X. They ruined the whole book for me. I can't, I, I just, I couldn't keep reading. And, and I'm always amazed how people can, how two different people can bring, can get so much different out of a book mm -hmm. um, and out of different, out of the smallest details too. It's, it's uh, uh, writing and storytelling in general is probably a very, um, it's an uncontrollable art. With a painting, you know, you, you see what the artist intended you to see. Mm -hmm. But writing, no. Uh, no matter what your intent is, you know, there are people who are going to love Kennet. There's people that are going to hate Kennet. There's people who are going to think that Fitz is a whiny teenager and other people who are going to say, oh, my gosh, that was me at that age, too. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, you, you can't control it. Yeah, relax and have fun, you know. Do you find you think about your old work? Um, because I I occasionally will think about Promise of Blood, which I wrote uh, almost 10 years ago now. And, and I'll think about it. And sometimes I'll say to myself, man, I, I really wish I had done something differently. And sometimes I'll say to myself, yeah, you did that pretty dang good. Uh, but but I, I wonder, how much do you think about the old things that you wrote? I think that you should have a certain amount of loyalty to the that writer who is no longer you anymore. And yeah. um uh you know there people have asked me well if you could go back and rewrite it something what would you change? And I nothing because it, it's not really mine anymore. That belonged to somebody that I used to be and um you know it, it, I tell I tell a lot of of young people who are interested in writing don't wait Write it now, even though you think you don't have time, because the story that you will write today and the character you'll write today, you might think you can write five years till you're out of grad school or, or three more years till the kids are in school during the day. You might think you can wait, but the story that you would have written will have transmuted into something else. So uh, I really think if you want to, to write a story, you should you know sit down and write it while that inspiration is just fresh and, and, and really bubbling up and you can't wait to write it, get it down because uh, it's, it, it's going to change if you try to write it later. 
I, it'll be a different book. I, I completely agree with that. I and I think that I think that writers that are maybe younger, maybe less technically savvy at what at, at writing, I think I think that they bring something else. Because I I look back on Promise of Blood, for instance, and I think I currently am a much better writer than that, Brian. But Promise of Blood gets by a lot on the enthusiasm of a 23, 24 year old Brian. And, and I don't have that anymore. I've got, you know, I've got more of the, well, I'm running a business. I'm feeding my family. I'm, I'm actually quite good at this. (laughs) Yeah. And, and it's changed. Uh, but I, I, but I kind of, sometimes I miss that. I miss that, that really young Brian being able to have the enthusiasm written on the page just between the words that I, I don't know if I could capture anymore. When when I was writing as Megan Lindholm, there was um, Stephen Bruce and I became friends in the course of the Leavik anthology. And uh, out of the blue one day, he sent me some pages, and this was pre-internet, this is pre-email, saying, this, this kind of sounds like a story you might want to help me write. And I'm going, oh gosh, I don't have time. I've got a deadline and I'm reading this and I'm going like, well, there's, there's no, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This, this, what if I write? And, and, and we ended up sending chapters back and forth until the book had written itself with no outline. And, um, and it just came to a natural ending and it was a wonderful experience. And I had, at the time, I had started to feel a little bit bogged down in the writing and suddenly that experience uh, woke it up all again, and it was fun again. And I think that it's it's a good thing to do every now and then is to step outside and say, this is something, I'm just going to write this for me for fun, because we, we didn't have a contract or, or, or an editor. And eventually, we, we did manage to, to sell the book. But um, you, I think I think you need, do need to rediscover that sometimes. You can get uh, too, too firmly in the harness and writing, you know, as, as I said, you know, it's, it's the big pressure is to write what the readers would like to see you write. And maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe that's not where your heart is right now. So. And I, I, I think there's something to be said about if the writer is not having fun, the reader can tell, uh, not necessarily, they might not be able to tell technically, but they can get the, they can get the sense that the reader, that the writer is not in this and that they're not enjoying it and and if they're not enjoying it then the reader's probably not going to enjoy it well i think about uh uh arthur conan doyle who was dragged back to writing sherlock holmes several times and um he did a very good job i don't i don't see that in the later stories so much but uh it, it makes me a little bit sad and and i've read some of doyle's other writing the white company and things like that and thought um yeah, this was a man who could have, have written so many different things, uh, but he, you know, they, they were kind of keeping him in a box with Sherlock Holmes. And I love Sherlock Holmes. But um, at the same time, the writer part of me says, you know, I, I wonder what else he would have written if, if that had not been, you know, that's what we want from you, you know. And I, I think it was, my, gosh, I, I have a terrible memory, so I might be remembering this wrong, but I think... It was somebody like Spielberg who said that uh, Star Wars ruined George Lucas because George Lucas was a genuinely fantastic filmmaker that then went on to only do Star Wars because Star Wars became Im- immense. And mm-hmm. and that was all anybody wanted from him. And even though he was a billionaire, you know, that you still that's all that anybody wanted to get out of him. And that kind of makes me sad. Well, it it 
It does. And, and people, um, if you are writing a series that people like, it is really, really hard to shift gears and write something else because sometimes the readers simply will refuse to follow you. Uh, and, and, you know, I was writing uh, a lot of the stuff that's based in the six duchies. And then I stepped sideways and I wrote the Soldier Sun trilogy. And I think sometimes the readers actually get a little bit angry at you because you're not delivering the next uh, serving of what they were hoping for. This is not, you know, it's not the same world. It's not the same characters. I think the most extreme thing of that was uh, I got a, a letter a long time ago from somebody who was very upset because, okay, let me make sure. Tad Williams wrote Tail Chaser's song, right? I, th I think that's right. I hope that's right. <laughs> but they said that uh, that he really needed to write more books. And this this person had outlined the next book that she thought would be in that story and was going to send me the outline and said, like, if you, you, you know, you're, you're a pretty good writer. If you write this and then we send it to him, he'll see that this is what the next story should be. And I was absolutely yeah. horrified, <laughs> but um, she obviously really wanted to stay in that world and with those characters. And I can sympathize with that, but uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I, I think if, you, <laughs> if, if there's a story that you've loved by a writer, you should have enough faith to step into a different story by the same writer. And um, Frank Herbert wrote Dune, which I love, but he also wrote The mm -hmm. White Plague, which, you know, uh, was also just as amazing to me, but it's, it's not nearly as well known. You know, Mark Twain. We know him for Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, but do people actually look at all of the other stuff he wrote that is just wonderful and amazing? I think yeah. if you if you love a writer's work, you should trust them enough to follow them into the next story, even if it's in a different world. That's my feeling anyway. So Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. I I do I, and and like you said, it's it's easy to sympathize with mm -hmm. people who want what's familiar because they already went out of their way and they got into a new universe and they occupied the heads of these characters and then they found love with them and they want to see more. And so I do sympathize with that. Um, but like we were saying before, if, if a writer is, is bored with those characters or, or is not enjoying that world anymore and, or simply can't pay their bills with that world anymore then they're going to move on and try something different. And, and if the readers don't move with them, then that's going to be hard. Then, then they're not going to get much more of that writer. It's hard for everybody involved. <laughs> but it's like, you know, uh, especially with our ability now to binge TV series. Yeah. Something that, you know, uh, when I was a kid, you know, if you weren't allowed, if, if you didn't have your homework done to stay up and watch that week's episode of Man from Uncle, you were just out of luck. It was never coming back. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a terrible thing. And now, of course, uh, I can find a TV series I like and say, oh, wow, look, this has, you know, five seasons. And in a matter of weeks, I can devour all five seasons. And then it's like, oh, uh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm out of television. Uh, and then you have to find something else. But, yeah. um, it, and it's the same, you know, with, with books. Uh, and I was just as guilty of, of that when I was a, a kid, you know, how, how many Tarzan books did I read? I don't know even how many uh, uh, Conan 
you know, yeah. Fafford and the Gray Mouser, you know, find every single one and read them all. It's, it's, uh, you know, and, and what would I give for one more story from Fritz Leiber? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But I did trust him enough to follow him into other wonderful worlds, such as Midnight by the Morphe Watch and um, so many other wonderful things that Liber wrote that weren't Fafford and the Gray Mouser. Yeah. But it, you know, as a teenager, it, it, it was a, a shifting gears and saying, well, I, I have to try this. And I, w- I was reluctant at first, but I was so glad that I uh, followed him into his different worlds. Yeah. it's uh, When I was young, I, I spent a lot of time, my mom volunteered for the local library once a week. And so I would spend the every Wednesday night with her for, I don't know, four hours or so. And I would just wander the stacks while she was volunteering in the genealogy library. And, uh, and I, I, I don't think I ever really understood that authors were people. And, and that's a weird thing to say, but I occupied worlds and but I never occupied authors. I would look, I would find a book that looked interesting. I would check it out. I would read it. I would look for the sequels, but I almost never paid attention to who wrote it ever. And, and as an author now, it makes me a little sad that that's what I was like when I was a kid, but it also kind of makes me understand that loyalty to a world and 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 matching book covers because you know that was the visual cue to me of being able to say oh this must be the sequel to that book i loved six months ago i'm gonna grab that you know and things like that when when you write are you the type to lock yourself in an office and tell everybody to you know go away or are you the type to sit down at the kitchen table and spread out and just kind of enjoy your day and, you know, get a little bit of writing here and there. Well, when, when I was first starting out, I would be doing errands and I would see, you know, somebody sitting in a coffee shop with a notebook writing. And I would think, oh man, how would that be? But, you know, I, I had my kids very young. Um, I had jobs. Uh, so I learned to write anywhere and everywhere. And this is something I've talked about before, sitting on the the floor of the bathroom with a spiral notebook and a pen while the two kids are splashing in the bathtub and you hope they don't get the page too wet. Yeah. Or little league practice and you sit in the car, you know, while the during the practice session for baseball or soccer or whatever it is, and you you write in a notebook. So there's always a notebook in your purse or there's always a notebook in the diaper bag. And um, you take those minutes wherever you can get them. And then at the end of the day, you know, if you can stay awake after the kids go to bed, you sit down and you type it up and it grows in the typing from your crappy handwriting to, uh, you know, nice, neat paragraphs and so on, it would, it would grow. So, you know, three pages of handwritten stuff becomes, you know, seven typed pages and that's really cool. But, uh, as I got older and the kids were in school and I had contracts, then it was easier to say, to allow myself to say, I really do have to go sit down someplace quiet and spend at least two hours writing today. I need to get that chapter done. Or I need to to move the story along. Nowadays, when I when I have the leisure, if you will, and no contract, then I'm a really slow writer, and I go over things over and over. And sometimes I will let it sit for a week until I come back and say, I think I'm ready to write that scene now. But something I I, I tell 
people who want to be writers is just because you're not writing doesn't mean you're not writing. You may be making pizza or pulling beers or uh, whatever you do, digging a ditch, but that doesn't mean you can't be working on dialogue in your head or or saying, you know, this is how that chapter is going to go. And um, you do all that in your head anyway before you actually sit down at the machine and uh, put the put the letters on the page. So, so you've mentioned that you you're you haven't been under contract for a while. Are we going to true. see a, a new book from you sometime in the next few years, or are you just going to leave that up to fate? I've got. I was looking at what I've been working on. I've got seventy four thousand words, which is a fairly fairly big commitment to this story. And uh, um, part of it is is knowing how the story ends. I, I'm not a person who likes to outline. Mm-hmm. I will get five or six chapters into a book, just following the characters and seeing what's happening. And uh, why I did not start writing even younger was that I never wanted to make a commitment to the end. Uh, I would There'd be so many possible endings to a story that I didn't want to write any of them. Yeah. And eventually I figured out that what happens is you write one of the endings and you wait a couple of days and say, did I like that? And if not, you're, you know, you're the king. You can just say, no, that didn't really happen. Erase that. And and now let's try a different ending. And until you find the one that you like for your story. Mm-hmm. But um, I like I like not having a deadline right now. Yeah. But at the same time, not having a deadline means I'm not finishing things. <laughs> so if I, if I make a commitment and send this in to an editor and they say, here is a contract and now you have a deadline, mm-hmm. I know I'll sit down and finish it. And, and send it off. But at the same time, it's, a, it's something I'm writing for myself. It's not, it's uh, Megan Lindholm. It's not Robin Hobb. It's not Farseer. It's not Fitz. It's uh, different stuff. So we'll see if an editor even wants it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so. That's really fun. So I've kept you a very long time, uh, but I like to end these by asking everybody, what's the last meal that blew your mind? What's the last thing that you ate that you still think about? <sighs> I hate cooking, and I resent have taking the time to eat food. Um, uh, this morning, I threw a bunch of stuff in a blender and had a smoothie for breakfast. I think that's the only thing I've eaten so far today. Yeah, I'm j- I'm just not a food person. It doesn't. Uh, uh, trying to think, I like a good steak. Um, <laughs> I like pizza, um, mm-hmm. uh, I, but I'm not I'm not focused on 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 food at all. Yeah. Um, you could ask me about the last garden that I walked through that I really, really liked or something like that, you know, or, or uh, you know, that's, that's more my, my sensory thing than, than food is. Um, gosh, the last meal. Okay. Uh, let's see. There is a, a, a Chinese restaurant in uh, kind of on the outskirts of Tacoma mm-hmm. that closed down for COVID. It has reopened uh, under a new name, which is Forbidden City. And while we were still doing takeout, um, my husband and I uh, picked up a meal there. And what really impressed me about it was they gave me the bag. And when I came home and I looked in the bag, uh, number one, the takeout boxes were the cornstarch-based ones, so they were completely biodegradable. And the second thing was that the the boxes had been very precisely been put in the bag. (laughs) It was a presentation of takeout food such as I had never seen before. You know, because usually you, you'll go to a restaurant and if it's a, a little bit upscale, the food will be presented in a very nice way. Well, this yeah. was a lovely presentation of takeout food. 
so that when I opened the little boxes, uh, the food was still arranged very, very nicely. So um, that was probably uh, the, mo the, the most memorable meal that I've had in the last year or so was this takeout of, of Chinese food from Forbidden City, where obviously somebody in the kitchen really cared and had packed these little takeout books, boxes so, so nicely. So uh, that would be it, I guess. That was author Robin Hobb. Thanks again to Robin for taking the time to speak with me. You can find links to Robin's social media and some of her books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget to like and subscribe. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.